So getting into uh, Luke, um, one thing to uh, remember coming into uh, Luke from the greater context of the book, I'm going to make one more comment about chapter 17 after this comment about the general nature of the book. Uh, Remember that Luke tells a lot of stories. So there's a lot of stories and parables in Luke that aren't in any other gospel. Uh, For instance, you have the parable of the Good Samaritan, Luke chapter 10. That's only in the gospel of Luke. Uh, You have famously the parable of the prodigal son. That's also only in Luke. Luke chapter 16, we have the story of the unrighteous steward, and that's also only in Luke. So you've got all of these stories in Luke 18 the chapter is going to start in verses 1 through 14 with two stories that are also only in Luke. And I just want, want to remind you to remember that when you see things in a gospel that are only found in that gospel, really what you're doing is you're, you're building what is unique to that writer's intention. Like what, what themes and principles really are we supposed to be seeing that are more unique to Luke compared to the other gospels. Uh, Luke also in these stories will oftentimes use evil people as illustrations to teach great lessons of righteousness, which is very interesting. Uh, for instance, the prodigal son was a very evil son, and yet he, turns out, was the one being used to teach grand spiritual righteous lessons. Luke 16, where you have the unrighteous steward who was being removed from office because he was stealing and squandering his master's possessions. Well, Jesus commends him and uses that as an opportunity to teach righteous lessons, right? Well, Luke 18 is going to be actually something very similar. Getting into Luke 18, remember that 17, 22 through 37. Jesus had been talking about uh, what seems to be the destruction that would come on Jerusalem eventually, the final conclusive judgment on the nation of Israel and on the city of Jerusalem. And so he's speaking about the judgment of God that would come upon the unrighteous of that city, And Luke 18 is going to start with a parable that I think is related to the ideas that he had just presented in that teaching. Uh, Thematically, um, sometimes it might might seem like I'm making a lot out of maybe something that's not there, but I'll at least tell you that it really seems like there are themes that continue to connect the stories that Jesus tells all together. And I'll mention that in Luke 17 we were noticing how Jesus was focusing on the overlooked, right? Remember the Samaritan that returned to Jesus after he had been healed was one of ten, but he was the only one that returned because he recognized that he was a a foreigner, he was a stranger. So he was more thankful because he realized how overlooked he should be by Jesus being a Jew, right? The Pharisees in Luke 17, 20 through 21, they didn't recognize the kingdom when it was right in front of them. They were overlooking the very thing that Jesus was primarily revealing and embodying. Well, in Luke 18... Jesus is going to deal with the fact that God does not overlook his people and that it's so important that we do not overlook God for who he really is because God is so different from us. His ways are so much higher that it's very important that we keep our faith in who he truly is as a living God even when who he is does not meet our preferences in the moment and especially when his character is not meeting our preferences in the moment. So with that, Luke 18, 1 through 8. Now he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart, saying, In a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. There was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him, saying, Give me legal protection from my opponent. 
For a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, Even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge said. Now will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night, and will he delay long over them? I tell you that he will bring about justice for them quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So first thing is verse 1. Luke does this a lot, and we've noticed this for those of you who have been here throughout this study. Jesus talks about, well, Luke as a writer by inspiration talks about the intention of the story before it's told, and that's very, very helpful. So you'll notice why this story was told. Jesus is specifically trying to teach that at all times we have to pray and not to lose heart. And I think the reason for this is when God judges the world, and as God judges the world, one of the easiest things that can cause our faith to slip is our suffering because of our existence in the presence of wickedness. Whether it's suffering oppression because of people who don't know God and don't love God, whether it's suffering direct persecution because of people who want to make it harder to have faith in God, or whether it's just discouragement, demotivation, whether it's just getting worn out, it is so easy, isn't it, to forget about the highest attributes of God's living character that God intends to comfort us and undergird our faith, especially in those exact moments, right? So Jesus recognizes that difficulty, which is why we have this story here. So what's interesting about the story, verse 2. Obviously, this judge was not a very good person. And in fact, the worse he is, the better the story gets. So he's completely selfish, only cares about himself. He's so selfish, he literally does not respect any person. Like he only literally cares about himself. So you can't expect any sense of proper justice to be coming out of a guy like this. No moral compass, no sense of anchoring code of behavior that he's holding to. It's just everything, everything's up to him. And you have this widow who's suffering. Two things about the story that I think are important is they're both selfish. The man is selfish as a judge. The widow isn't righteous just because she's a widow. She wants legal protection. And as a widow, can she get that anywhere else? She's desperate. She knows that this is her only way. And that's it. If she only has a selfish judge, that's what she has to work with. And she will pester that judge until she gets her way because she realizes he has the power to give her what she needs. And she recognizes that if he has the power and if her suffering is great enough, it's worth it to continue pestering him, right? So in verse 4 and 5, he kind of talks to himself here. We get insight into this personal conversation. You know, he recognizes that even though he doesn't respect God or man, he doesn't want to be bothered continuously. He'll get worn out. So he figures he'll just give her legal protection. And the point in verse 6 and 7 is not that we have to pester God into helping us. It's not the point. The point is, because of my lack of faith, I assume my circumstances mean that God is someone other than who he really is. That by my praying and by my continued suffering, I begin to warp my view of God and think, well, maybe God actually doesn't care. Maybe God's actually not going to help me. Maybe God doesn't have the power to help me. Maybe God's not hearing my prayers. 
And what Jesus is saying is, the only reason I would begin to think that is because I've lost sight of who God really is. We have to realize that God is our only source of protection. There's no other option. Idolatry. Idolatry is one of the key reasons my heart will turn away from God in suffering. Jesus in Luke has been constantly trying to teach in a way to get idolatry and the possibility of idolatry out of the hearts of his disciples. It's the reason for some of his most extreme teaching because in Jesus' mind, for us to show God's light and radiance requires that we love him in a way that reflects the reality of his love for us. Turn to Psalm 123. I want to show you this this psalm uh, briefly here. It's it's a short psalm that I think embodies the idea here. Jesus is actually only teaching what all of the psalmists actually believed about God. The psalmists suffered in intense and persistent ways. But they, every single psalmist, everyone without fail, had the option to not suffer. All they had to do to not suffer was pull back on their faith. That's it. And they could have still acknowledged God. They could have kept continuing to uh, verbalize and confess some belief in God. But in their minds, it was worth continuing to suffer intensely if it meant continuing to see God as he truly is and not yield a compromised view of God. Psalm 123. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid to the hand of their mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until he is gracious to us. Be gracious to us, O Lord. Be gracious to us, for we are greatly filled with contempt. Our soul is greatly filled with the scoffing of those who are at ease and with the contempt of the proud. And many psalms around this context in that series enlighten that with more angles. But you see the idea, the psalmist is saying, we're suffering intensively, but we're not going to stop looking to the Lord because he will be gracious to us. That's what Jesus is saying. If an unrighteous judge has the sense to yield to a widow when he has no concern over her being a widow and being defenseless, but just of himself, how much more can we trust that God cares about his elect chosen people and that he will bring about justice for them quickly. We can suffer. We can suffer and find hope, joy, and encouragement and comfort knowing how much God cares about us. And the reality is all of us are probably suffering in some way. Some of us maybe more than others. There's inevitably things in our lives that can get us to look away from the Lord or be really discouraged about things happening in our lives. This parable right here is taught by Jesus for that very purpose, to give us hope and encouragement. God cares about you. God knows what you're struggling with. God is suffering with you and is hurt by the same things we are. And our task is to let God be true and just continue to renew our hearts in understanding who the living God is and not think that he just changes all of a sudden when things get hard for me, right? But I think the the primary lesson here is we need to be desperate for God's mercy. We need to be people who long for his mercy. And that leads into the next uh, story in 9 through 14. And so when we realize that we're worthy of being overlooked, when we realize how little we are, we cease to overlook the glory of God and we'll cling to him. 9 through 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. 
The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. So again, in verse 9, we're told the intention of the story, right? It says very directly, it's is about people who trust in themselves that they're righteous and view others with contempt. I think one thing to think about initially with that, the Pharisee in this story viewed others with contempt, but in verse 13, this tax collector, how do you think he viewed people? Like, how do you think he viewed other tax collectors, adulterers, swindlers, unjust? Like, what do you think his attitude was toward them? you think that maybe he was able to have more heartfelt compassion towards them? Not in a way that compromised his attitude of God's mercy, but in realizing how much he needed God's mercy, do you think he would be moved to try to help others to see how readily God gives that mercy? Another thing about this is in verse 14, there's no divine intervention here. So God doesn't speak to the tax collector directly and say from heaven like, ah, you are now justified. Go home in peace. And neither does the similar thing happen to the Pharisee. There's no divine intervention that rebukes him. He just prays and goes on his way and their hearts are simply trusted by God and being able to be convicted for uh, the things that they say. But look at the Pharisee in verse 11. Who is he praying to? I think not every translation quite gets this, but you look in verse 11, he was praying to himself. wasn't even praying to God. And I'll tell you guys, if I'm honest, I've prayed to myself so many times. Like I'm really not seeing God for who he is like that widow. I'm not really seeing the desperation of my need for God and his mercy for him to give me things as the dire receiver of his blessings. But you see in verse 13, you get the sense that there's this dire sense of need. When we see God, when we really see him and we stop overlooking him because of idols in our hearts, one of the ways that's evidenced is we get the perception of how desperately we need his mercy, fundamentally. And we will cling to his mercies so badly. And we will be so thankful for his mercies. And we'll never want to stop comprehending more of the glory of his mercies, right? And we'll cling to him for it. Another thing is, in verse 11 and 12, you get the sense that the Pharisee, although he had been doing good things, those good things had become an idol for him. Was he an idolater? What was he really worshiping, right? I mean, obviously, he neither saw nor worshiped God, really. And that's, I think, one of the big points of the parable. He had fallen into the worst deceptions, using God's commands and his good things that he delivers to do and using them as a means of exalting self, right? Which again, if I'm honest, I've been guilty of that and can easily be guilty of that. Um, The idea is Jesus, Jesus, I think, is getting to the point of if we see God, we will no longer compare ourselves to other people. So you notice that Comparing himself to others made him view himself very highly. There's either two things that are going to happen when I begin comparing myself to others. I'm either going to get really discouraged by how much it seems like other people are doing compared to me, 
how it seems like other people have greater abilities than I have to serve the Lord. And I'm going to focus so much on that that it'll discourage me from actually taking initiative and being thankful for where I am in God's kingdom. Or I'll become content and overly satisfied with where I am. And I'll think that because I'm doing more than this other person, I'll become very lax and content with where I am, right? Both of those are perceptions that come from a lack of faith and not seeing God. In verse 13, if I see God, I will simply be overwhelmed by the greatness of the mercy that I receive when I compare myself directly to him. Faith makes comparison between me and God, nobody else. And from there, I try to help and serve others, not by comparing myself to them, not out of any sense of competition or pride, but out of the absolute lowliness of recognizing God's greatness compared to my absolute lack of any kind of greatness of my own. So verse 15 through 17. This story, I think, kind of bridges a gap between this parable and the next story. And they were bringing even their babies to him so that he would touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking them. But Jesus called for them, saying, Permit the children to come to me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. Uh, Children are receivers. That's it. Like Phoebe, she doesn't give anything to the family. There's no great contribution she makes. She eats up all the resources of the household. She eats up our time. She eats up our energy. She eats up money. Like emotions, I mean, she eats everything away. And then Mike and Suzanne, your two kids, the same thing, I'm sure. They're eating away resources, right? You are the givers and they're the receiver. That's their job. They just need to live in their end of their role and that's it. You imagine if Phoebe decided in her little baby mind that she really needs to get a job because she's got to be the one to make income for this family. Because, I mean, what's going to happen if she doesn't work? How is the household going to survive, right? You imagine how insane that would be. Or, like, again, if Corey or Kaylee, they they got in their their minds that if they don't do something, this household's going to fall apart. They have to be the ones to start giving something back. doesn't make sense. Because we are just like that widow. We're just like the tax collector. We are receivers. That's it. One of the biggest struggles of pride is thinking that our works or our job is to give God something back for all he gives us. And that is such a wrong idea that leads to discouragement. It leads to having a faith that is not passionate because it can't comprehend the grace of God. Or it leads to a faith that so quickly focuses on immediate things that God is not able to have the role that he wishes to have in our lives. And so, again, as the theme is through Luke here, he's overlooked. The very person that God is is not the person who I perceive him to be. We have to be receivers. So 18 through uh, 24. I'm sorry, 25. A ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder, or do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he said, All these I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack. Sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor. And you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he had heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier 
for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. You know what the first problem is here? I think Jesus does what he so often does in Luke, which this story in the other gospel, Jesus does the same thing. But you remember how in Luke we've seen how Jesus will turn someone's question or statement. He'll, he'll address something deeper to tell them, in a sense, they could have been asking a better question. Or that there's, there's something that they're asking that's really not, it's not the right question at all. So notice what Jesus first really notices. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. That's the real problem the rich young ruler had. He did not comprehend the goodness of God outside of any person, outside of righteous people or his own righteous living. Jesus, I think, further exposes it in commanding him to do something that only somebody who knows God's goodness would be willing to do. Turn back to Luke chapter 6 really quick. Again, Luke 6 is the only... It's the only sermon of its kind in the Gospel of Luke. It's the only, like, moral sermon of righteous living in Luke's Gospel. I want you to look at the very first thing Jesus says in this sermon. Luke chapter 6, verse 20. The very first thing Jesus says in his, like, cornerstone sermon of the Gospel. He says, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. You look at verse 24. Woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. So in the very beginning of Luke, Jesus is appealing to the poor. He's demonstrating in that sermon that his, his, his goal is to bring those who are high in the world, to bring them low, and those who are low in the world, to bring them high. James in chapter 1 uh, talks about this as well when he blesses the poor and then uh, denounces the rich. And again, it's not that having things in the world or even having wealth is an inherently evil thing. It's just that as we've looked through Luke, Jesus mixes together the idea that if we understand mercy and repentance, a fundamental way that that will change our lives is our system of value and how we use the things that we possess in recognizing that we're stewards of things that God has entrusted us with for his own glory and his own purpose. So getting back to Luke chapter 18. Getting back to Luke chapter 18. In chapter 10, when Jesus taught the parable of the Good Samaritan, uh, the question he was asked, what's the primary command? What's the greatest commandment? And then Jesus asked the man, well, what's written in the law? How does it read to you? And you remember the man said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself, right? So in verse 22, when Jesus said one thing you still lack, that was the thing. That was the one thing. This rich ruler who had been keeping some commandments from his youth had not learned to love God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength. In Deuteronomy, where that's from, the first 11 chapters are all promises. One promise stacked on top of the other. And the idea is God appeals to the nation in that time in Deuteronomy to love him by first perceiving how much he loves them how much he's giving them, and how everything they are, everything they have, is simply a thread of a taste of his great goodness and love for them. Just an evidence of how far he's willing to go in his promises toward them as his special people. So in verse 22, Jesus is simply pushing forward the very application of Deuteronomy. If you really want to know 
what to do to have life. Love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Sell everything that you have and give it to the boar, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And obviously in verse 23, he was unwilling to do those things because of how rich he was. Um, Back in verse 13, his riches had caused him to not perceive the mercies of God. He couldn't see mercy in the command. Kind of like our lesson in 1 Kings 17, he didn't see the promise in the command, which exposed that there was an idol in his heart. And Jesus then continued to teach that the idol in his heart was his own riches. Uh, So in verse 25, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. If Jesus said it would be harder to get to heaven if you had purple hair, it would be harder to get to heaven if you wear five bracelets on your left arm. How many of us would start wearing five bracelets on our left arm or dyeing our hair purple, right? You'd probably be really careful to avoid that at every cost. You see four bracelets and you're like, whoa, 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 I'm taking all these off. I don't even, I don't want to tread the line. So when Jesus says it is hard for the wealthy to get to heaven, why are we tipping the line? Why am I thinking, well, you know, I want to be as wealthy as possible and maybe like can still figure out a way to make it easier on myself. No, the kingdom, the reality of the kingdom is riches make it harder. It is hard to figure out how to be properly generous with your money. And then when you try to be generous, man, first of all, it's hard to figure out how to be generous. But then second of all, you start being generous to people directly and you see how people take advantage of you. You begin to question people's motives. You begin to look down on others. It is dangerous to be in a position of being the giver when you're meant to be the receiver. God has designed us to be receivers and we need to give as receivers first, right? It is very, very challenging to have wealth and great possessions and truly humble ourselves and get those idols out of our hearts. So we have a lot of things. We just have to be very careful, very, very, very careful that the things that we possess don't cause us to become like this rich man and make me say, I'm glad Jesus isn't telling me to sell all my possessions. <laughs> you know? Like, I'm glad that was him, and that's him and not me, right? Jesus definitely is not telling me to do that. We're told to do the same thing in, and I hate to say this, in principle, right? Like, we are told in principle the same thing. We have to completely disconnect ourselves from everything we possess. It all has to belong to the Lord to where if it goes, it goes. If we've got to sell it, we sell it. If we lose it in a disaster, so be it. Everything belongs to the Lord, right? We have got to live with the condition of heart that puts us here. Problem with the rich young ruler is he had completely deceived himself. He was not living with the heart condition that would put him in the humble state to have done this. And Jesus did him a favor by exposing the underlying primary problem of his faith, right? So verse 26, we'll read through verse 30. They who heard it said, then who could be saved? But he said, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. Peter said, behold, we have left our own homes and followed you. Just think about this question. I'm going to word it a little bit differently. Are we overlooked? Is God overlooking what we've sacrificed? Is God paying attention to how much we've given up? And he said to them, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times as, as much at this time and in the age to come eternal life. 
Idols make it impossible for us to see how much God gives us, how much God is promising, and how lavishly he pours blessings that so exceedingly overcompensate the losses of this present life that they are uncomparable. One reference to this is 2 Corinthians chapter 4 at the end of the chapter, if you're turning your Bibles there. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, uh, verse 16 through 18. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 16 through 18. He says, and he's talking about suffering and loss and seeing things with this perspective. He says, Therefore we do not lose heart, but though our, outer, our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day for momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So I just want to ask, do you see things that way? Like, have your eyes been opened to be able to see and, and look at the eternal like what Paul is saying there? And I'll tell you, Things like this expose that there are idols in my heart that I've got to figure out. How do, how do I let God in my faith open my eyes to see so much more clearly the eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison? To the point where the, the, the temporal and physical things can be seen in the right perspective. And so Jesus understands that his disciples' question really shows a greater problem we have, that it takes time and takes urging from the Lord for us to open our eyes. But in Jesus' urging, you see that he says, God gives so much more. What you've lost in God's kingdom is not a loss. God is ready to give so much more, and there is so much more, including even beyond the things we receive now, what's in eternal life. So verse 31. Then he took the twelve aside and began saying, and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And after they have scourged him, they will kill him. And the third day he will rise again. But the disciples understood none of these things and the meaning of this statement was hidden from them and they did not comprehend the things that were said. So while Jesus was saying, God gives you everything, families and homes and an eternal kingdom, he then immediately follows up, but as for me, I'm on my way to lose everything. It's just like the lesson this morning, right? It wasn't just that it just so happened that Jesus was crucified. It's that God had to be determined, absolutely fixated, on humbling himself and marring his own son more than any man in order to be able to give us the grace that he promises. If that was not in Jesus' heart, there would be no hope. That's the God we serve. We serve a God who loves sacrificing himself to bless others who gives us great freedom at his own expense, who binds and restricts himself in a covenant that the world doesn't recognize so that we can have the freedom to choose, freedom to reject him, freedom to determine whether or not we're going to choose to know him because love gives freedom at one's own expense. That's love. Think about if you're raising kids in a household where you give them no liberty. You control all of their decisions. You, you don't let them do anything that could potentially risk their harm. You control all of their choices. You never let them leave their home and have any fun. How is that child going to grow up? That's going to be one emotionally messed up child, right? And I've met children like that, sometimes even parents who are well-intended. They'll, they'll, they'll control their children to a fault, right? Jesus 
shows that God's character takes such risks to give us freedom. And the more we understand the price that our freedom demands from God, the more we'll cling to God out of gratitude for the freedoms he affords us. It's kind of like the American motto, freedom is not free, right? That's, I mean, that's true. But the degree of suffering that God has to undergo exceeds whatever the American military has to do to keep us safe and to keep us free. It relates back to Luke 18 at the very beginning. What does God have to do to give us security, to assure us that he protects us, to give us the promise that he'll watch over us and keep us safe? What, is it, what does it take for God to be able to give those promises, right? Whatever it takes. Verse 35 to 43. As Jesus was approaching Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the road begging. Now hearing a crowd going by, he began to inquire what this was. They told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by, called out saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Those who led the way were sternly telling him to be quiet, but he kept crying out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and commanded that he be brought to him. And when he came near, he questioned him, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, I want to regain my sight. Jesus said to him, Receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and began following him, glorifying God. When all the people saw it, they gave praise to God. It's ironic that the only person in this chapter who could see was the blind man. So remember the rich young ruler there, he was told what to do and he didn't do it. And Jesus exposed that he actually could not see God. He did not see God. And you look back in verse 34, Jesus just got done speaking quite plainly about his suffering and they just, they don't even get it. They're totally blind. And again, with, with the threaded theme, they overlook it. They just overlook it and keep following him, right? And you look at how this blind man saw Jesus. You remember how Jesus corrected the rich young ruler. He said, good teacher. How does this blind man refer to Jesus? Is he good teacher to Jesus? No, he's son of David. I think this is like the only time in the gospel he's referred to as son of David. And mind you, this wasn't just a blind man. He was a beggar. The beggar who was blind saw Jesus more clearly than anybody else. And he saw him as he truly was. And notice everybody tried to stop him. You remember in Luke 18, did the widow let the selfishness of the judge stop her? Did she let time stop her persistence? If we really understand who Jesus really is, nothing will stop us. You know, people sometimes give up on seeking the truth because of hypocrites, because people in the church aren't encouraging enough, they're not who I hope for them to be, whatever. That's not real faith. Real faith will not stop until it sees Jesus. Just like at the beginning of Luke 17, there are things that we think are some great act of faith, and those are the very things that are actually evidences of only the most fundamental mustard seed of faith. It is not some great act of faith to trudge through all the hypocrisy, all the denominations, and find the truth. It is the most simple faith, the most accessible and available faith. Right? So this blind man would not let the crowds or the selfishness or the ignorance or the hypocrisy of the disciples stop him because Jesus was the son of David. Another thing is, he knew that Jesus could heal him. If I really know, just like the widow, what Jesus has, nobody else can do for me. And I know he's willing. 
I will not stop until I get it from him. So he just kept shouting, Son of David, have mercy on me. And here's one thing we need to know about Jesus. Jesus reveals about God the Father, the request for mercy is never a burden on God. That is exactly what his ears are open to. God is waiting for that request for mercy. You remember the tax collector and the Pharisee. What was the tax collector begging for? God, be merciful to me, the sinner. That's exactly what God is looking for. Our prayers should be flooded with requests for mercy and gratitude for mercy. That should just be the core of why we pray. And it should be in the, in the center of everything else that we talk about is the mercy of God. Mercy gives us comfort. Mercy gives us hope. Mercy gives us strength. Mercy gives us joy. There are so many ways that mercy impacts somebody's life. And when somebody receives no mercy, it makes them agitated, impatient, angry. It makes them easily drawn to things to bind wounds that don't properly bind those wounds. Mercy heals the heart. So because he asked for mercy, look at verse 41. What do you want me to do for you? How would you like a blank check written by Jesus? <laughs> he gives you a check says, I'll write anything you want in this check. You tell me what you want me to fill in. And you would think, what a waste asking for eyesight. How about a gajillion dollars? How about a seat on a throne in the kingdom? Something, you know? Eyesight? He just wanted to see Jesus. I think that's the thing. He knew he was the son of David. All he wanted to do was just, he wanted to see Jesus. And we've talked recently about that. That, that is the primary and sole desire of faith just to see Jesus, just to see God. And if we want to see God, he'll let, he'll let us find him. He'll open our eyes. He'll let us see his glory. He'll allow us to follow Jesus. And if you look at verse 43, we'll be filled with joy and praise toward God. When our lives aren't filled with praise to God, it's because we have forgotten about the greatness of the mercy of God. It is so easy in life to be moved off of the foundation that we were set on in our salvation. Mercy is why we are who we are. If we understand God's mercy in verse 43, if we see God, we will glorify him and praise God. And in verse 43, when other people see it, they'll be drawn to give him praise as well. That's where we'll stop for this evening. And Lord willing, we'll pick up in chapter 19 next time. Um, if there's any need that needs to be made known or any request or even a request for strength or prayer of any kind, now would be the perfect time while we stand and sing invitation songs.